Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. Uh, We're jumping ahead a bit from last week. Last week we looked at Psalm 16, and that came, as I told you last week, from a special request, and I took on the challenge of Pastor Bob to take on those special requests. So we did Psalm 16 last week, and this week we are uh, going to be looking at Psalm 63. So please give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Mighty write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Will you come to the Lord in prayer with me now? Our Heavenly Father, we come to a text where David tells us of his thirsty soul. How he longs for rest in you. And so we pray, O Lord, that through our study of this word and through the preaching of your word, our souls might find rest in you, in and through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. What are ways that you rest? What are different kinds of ways that you rest? I think we all know that there are different kinds of rest. Certainly there is physical rest. Rest, where we have rest for our bodies. Uh, we do some laborious work for hours on end, and we just need some sort of physical rest. I remember when we at North Point here went to Baton Rouge, and we were gutting houses and gutting sheds and putting up drywall, and I just needed some rest. I, I know I did. Maybe the young kids didn't. But I certainly needed some rest. So there's physical rest. There's also mental rest, a rest for the mind. I know many in here have just gotten done taking finals. You're studying at all hours of the night, and you're pouring into your notes and into your books and studying flashcards, and when finals are over, you just need some sort of mental rest. Your mind needs some rest. I remember when I was in seminary and I was done with finals, I couldn't even look at a book. So there's physical rest. There's mental rest. But there's also spiritual rest. A rest where we rest in something bigger and greater than ourselves. A rest, if you will, for our souls. And that is the rest that we learn of here in Psalm 63. 
David, three times in verses 1 through 8, talks about his soul. Verse 1, verse 5, and verse 8, he says, My soul, my soul, my soul. His soul is of chief concern for David in this psalm. So in verses 1 through 8, we see David longing for rest for his soul, and he finds it in the one true God of Israel. And only after he finds satisfaction for his soul, after he finds spiritual rest in God in verses 1 through 8, he is then, in verses 9 through 11, assured of his victory with God over all of his enemies. What is the context of this psalm? What is the context of this satisfaction in God and his assured victory with God? Well, we are told at the beginning of the psalm that David is in the wilderness of Judah. Now, we have really one of two options as far as the historical context for the psalm goes. Either David is on the run fleeing from King Saul, the first king of Israel who sought to destroy David's life, Or he's on the run from Absalom, his son, who sought to usurp the throne of David and who pushed David out of the capital city of Jerusalem into the wilderness. Now, most commentators and scholars are in agreement that this is most likely the latter of those two options. David David fleeing his son Absalom. And the reason for that comes in verse 11 of our psalm where David calls himself the king. And we know that David was not yet king when King Saul was after him. So we should see this as David in the wilderness, on the run from his son Absalom. David is in a dry, David is in an arid land. He's in the wilderness, and he is most likely both hungry and he is most likely thirsty. And he uses the common themes that surround us when we find ourselves hungry and thirsty in a dry and arid land. He he uses those feelings and he uses them to express his longing of his soul for God. Read verse 1 with me. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is hungry. David is thirsty. David's very life hangs in the balance. In verse 9, we are told that people are seeking to destroy his life. And with all of this before him, hunger, thirst, his very life hanging on in the balance, David concerns himself with his soul, with his spiritual welfare. I think of those three types of rest that I mentioned earlier, isn't it true that the one we often neglect the most is spiritual rest? In the hustle and bustle of 21st century life, there really isn't much time to concern ourselves with the soul. There are just so many deadlines. There are so many activities. There's so much work to be done. There's so many new technologies to keep up with. There's really no time to concern ourselves with spiritual rest. Mental and physical rest, sure. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to keep up with our culture. But spiritual rest? How often do we say, I wish I had more time to do devotions? 
I wish I had more time to read my Bible. I wish I had more time to pray. But there just isn't enough time in the day. Brothers and sisters, is it that there's not enough time in the day? Or is it that we don't have our priorities straight? Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, as he looked out on his own culture, and he saw the many distractions that men had, distractions away from the soul and thinking on God, Blaise Pascal, he wrote this, Men are overwhelmed with busyness, with the study of languages, and with physical exercise. And they are made to understand that they cannot be happy unless their health, their honor, their fortune, and that of their friends be in a good condition. And that a single thing wanting will make them unhappy. Thus they are given cares and business which make them bustle about from break of day. It is, you will exclaim, a strange way to make them happy. What more could be done to make them miserable? We should only have to relieve them from all these cares, for then they would see themselves. They would reflect on what they are, from where they came, and where they will go. And thus we cannot employ and divert them too much. And this is why... After having given them so much busyness, we advise them, if they have some time for relaxation, to employ it in amusement, in play, and so to always be fully occupied. Now, if that is true for 17th century France, how true is it today for 21st century America? We are constantly distracted. There's just no time to consider our spiritual Rest, But David here, with all sorts of distractions surrounding him, war, family affairs, hunger, thirst, he occupies his mind first and foremost with his spiritual welfare, with rest for his soul. Where does David find this rest in God? Well, verse 2, we are told that he finds this rest in the sanctuary of God, where he has beheld his power and his glory. The sanctuary was found in Jerusalem. And remember, David is away from Jerusalem. He's been pushed out of Jerusalem by Absalom in the wilderness. And he's now longing for that corporate worship with the saints that we learned of last week in Psalm 16, those saints that David's delight is in. David longs for corporate worship with his fellow saints. He longs for that time in the sanctuary where he beholds the glory and power of God. I think we often take for granted what a blessing it is to live in this country where we can freely meet every single Sunday together as saints, delighting in each other, and delighting in the glory and in the power of God. David finds his rest in the sanctuary of God, in corporate worship. David finds his rest also in God's covenantal love. Verse 3, we read, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now that word steadfast love is that Hebrew word hesed. And we saw it before in Psalm 13. And it really means God's covenantal love. God's faithful love. God's fatherly love 
for his covenant people. There are many ways we can talk about God's love. One of the ways we talk about God's love is his love for all people without discrimination in creation itself. We look at our hands, we look at our feet, we look at the makeup of our bodies, we look at the universe, creation itself, we see God's love for all people. But then there, there, there is a discriminatory love, a special love that God has for his covenant people. A covenantal love. A love where he binds himself to his people as a father binds himself to his children. So that God can say in Exodus 4 that Israel is his son. It's interesting when we look at verse 8, when David says, My soul clings to you. That word for cling there is often used to describe a tight relationship between a husband and a wife. It's an intimate love. It's a personal love. It's a faithful love. And that is the love that David speaks of here. That is the love that David has experienced. God's fatherly, covenantal love. Brothers and sisters, it is a love that is available to each and every one of us today. It is a love that God gives to us in the person of His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus first instituted the supper, He raises up a cup of wine, and He says, This is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. I ask you, is there anything more personal? Is there anything more intimate? Is there anything more loving than when the Son of God says, I give you my blood, I give you my body, eat, drink. Cling your soul to me and call God Father as I call God Father. And know the love of Father which is great, greater than life. Because unlike life, which will one day end, this love will never end. When we feed on Christ by faith, we can say along with David in verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Cling to Christ today and experience the steadfast, covenantal love of God, your Father. David's satisfied soul leads to all his faculties praising God, all the parts of his makeup praising God. Verse 4, he lifts up his hands. Verse 5, his mouth mouth will praise God with joyful lips. Verse 6, with his mind he meditates on God. You get a picture of David saying here, I will give you my best God. I exercise my mind, my body, my soul. I exercise it all for you. The film Chariots of Fire, a 1980 Oscar-winning film, tells the story of an Olympic runner named Eric Little, a devout Scottish Christian who refused to run the 100-meter race because it was held on the Sabbath on Sunday. 
Instead, he would run the 400-meter race that was held on a weekday, a race he would win. And I love the way the actor in that movie depicts Eric Little. He's got his head, and it's apparently the way Little ran. He has his head lifted up high as though he's pointing towards God. He's got his mouth wide open. He's flailing his arms like crazy. He's just giving it everything he's got. He's running for the glory of God. So that when people saw Eric Little run, they could say, there's one who runs for something greater than himself. He ran for the glory of God. When the soul is fed, brothers and sisters, when the soul is satisfied with God and with His steadfast love for us in Christ, then all other parts of our makeup fall into line. We are able to do what Paul commands us to do and give all glory to God in everything that we do. David has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and in turn, he gives him everything he's got. He gives him his best. I imagine if we were to see David living his life, we would say something similar to what we we would say if we saw Little running. There's a man that lives for something greater than himself. I ask you today, do you give God your best? Can people who witness you live your life day in and day out say of you, he or she lives for something greater than themselves? Parents, can your kids say of you, my mom, my dad, they live for something greater than themselves? Friends, our kids, can your friends say of you, My friend lives for something greater than himself. In your place of work, can your co-worker say, he or she doesn't work first and foremost for the paycheck or even to put food on the table, but he or she works for something greater than themselves. When people see us living their lives, they are to see the God that we serve. David gives God his best. And he worships and glorifies him with everything he's got. Verses 9 through 11. David's soul being at rest gives him confidence in the victory he will have with God. Verse 9 through 10 we read, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Absalom and his soldiers will not be victorious. All of God's enemies will in the end be a portion for jackals. A portion for scavengers to scavenge up their remains. It's amazing and remarkable to see David's confidence here when we remember the circumstances that he finds himself in. Remember, David is on the run. David has enemies who are seeking to destroy his life. He's pushed out of the capital city of Jerusalem, where the king reigned from. 
His own son has taken his throne and rebelled against him. David has every reason here to question himself. To question himself both as a king and as a father. David has every reason to turn in on himself. To see his failure and fall into utter despair. Fall into utter defeat. He could easily say in verse 9, Those who seek to destroy my life will succeed. I'm a failure as a king. I'm a failure as a father. The enemy has won. Isn't that what happens to us when we become so absorbed in ourselves? When we become so absorbed in our own failures? We are blinded to God. All we can see is our own failures. All we can see is our own loss. All we can see is our own faults. And because we are sinners, we think that we are the center of the universe. And so when we fail, it's all over. The enemy has won. All is lost. And so we fall more and more into despair the more and more we fall into ourselves. But notice that's not what David does here. He falls not into himself, but into the arms of his loving, of his gracious, and of his merciful Father. And in doing so, he is assured that God is for him. His enemies will not prevail. Because the God of Israel is his God. And his steadfast love will endure forever. One of the things that Satan will often do will convince us that victory or defeat, that life or death rests in our own capabilities. It rests in our own works. In short, what Satan tries to do is he tries to question the gospel. In Galatians 1 verse 8, Paul will say this, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. What is, what is, the, what is Paul addressing here? Paul is addressing those who have infiltrated the church and have said that Christ is not enough. They have said that Christ might get you in, but you need to finish the work. Salvation and victory at the end of the day depends on you. And Paul says of such people that say such things, let them be accursed. Quite literally it says, let them go to hell. The great reformer Martin Luther, before he launched the Reformation in 1517, was an Augustinian monk. And as an Augustinian monk, he would spend hours in his confession box, confessing his sin to his priest to the point where he drove his priest nuts. He would spend hours and hours in his chamber, tormented by his sin, feeling that the devil himself was literally tormenting him. And this would go on for days and days and days until his eyes fell upon Romans 1, verse 17, where it says, The righteous shall live by faith. Luther writes, 
after experiencing this passage, he writes this, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther recognized that his victory, his salvation, was not dependent upon him and his works, but it was dependent upon God and what God had done for him in Jesus Christ. And that God gives the gift of faith uniting us to Christ so that his righteousness righteousness now is reckoned to our account. And this led Luther out of his despair as though he has entered God's heavenly gates for the first time. Where do you go when you feel defeated? Where do you go when guilt consumes you? Do you run to yourself? Do you run to your own record before God? Or do you run to Jesus Christ, the King? The King who has defeated all His and our enemies. Verse 11, we read, The King shall rejoice in God. All who swear by Him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. We have many liars in our own day, don't we? Many who will exalt themselves and say that we need not swear by God and His Son. That there is no God, that there is, and if there is, He would be nothing like the God of Scripture. That there is no King, that there is no Christ that is victorious over sin and over death. Perhaps there was a Jesus of Nazareth, perhaps He was very loving and philanthropic, but that's about as far as it goes. David calls such people liars. Not mistaken, not confused, but liars. Romans 1, Paul will say that all men know God, but they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. They forcibly subdue. They forcibly suffocate. They forcibly crush the truth of God and His Son. They lie to themselves and they lie to others when they say that God is not God and that Christ is not the victorious King over sin and over death. They're liars, says David. In a moment, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we take the bread and as we take the cup, brothers and sisters, what we are doing is we are committing ourselves not to a lie, but to the truth, to the truth of Jesus Christ, whose body has been broken and whose blood has been shed. And that body broken and that blood shed is the enemy's defeat and is our victory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Christ. And we ask and we pray now that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to feed on him by faith. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.